John chapter 18, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. John chapter 18, I believe it's on page 1086, if you're using one of the church Bibles. Just when you thought we had finished John's Gospel, uh, we go back to John chapter 18. Uh, We've been in John for a while. Craig finished John's Gospel, but we didn't complete John's Gospel because we moved, you'll remember, that we moved from chapter 12 then into Easter in chapter 20. We're turning to chapter 18 because a few years ago in the evening services we went through John chapter 13 to 17. So this is the explanation of the rearrangement of the order of John's Gospel, and there will be an exam on how we have done this as you leave church this morning. But we are turning in the providence of God now to the passion narrative in John's Gospel, which is appropriate uh, on a day when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we begin by reading about the betrayal and arrest of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? that the Father has given me. Back in John chapter 14 and verse 31, John wrote something that has always puzzled readers of John's gospel. The last words of that chapter are, rise, let us go from here. And you'll notice that the first words of chapter 18 are when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. And the puzzle has always been, 
what happened between the end of chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 18. Did they rise and leave the room? And if they did so, where did Jesus give the teaching that's contained in chapters 15 and 16? And where was he when he prayed the prayer in chapter 17? My own view is this, that Jesus didn't move at all. And I say that because the words that he uses at the end of chapter 14 are used outside of the New Testament, not so much in the context of a change of location, but in the sense of being conscious that you're going to face opposition. They're used in a military context. And I think that's what Jesus is probably saying to the disciples on the basis of the teaching he has given to them. He is advising them that there are enemies, and now they must be ready to face those enemies. And this is exactly what happens, as you see at the beginning of chapter 18. It's a scene of a good deal of noise and confusion, and as we learn towards the end of the passage, it's a scene where some blood is shed. There are lights and there is action. And the word that's translated in the English Standard Version that I'm using, uh, having procured a band of soldiers, is actually a cohort of soldiers. And in addition to a cohort of soldiers, uh, perhaps Roman soldiers, and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, a cohort numbered about 600 soldiers. And uh, there are occasions in antiquity, even in the Acts of the Apostles, when in order either to take one man prisoner or to guard one prisoner, very large numbers of soldiers were used. And so the scene that is set here is a scene of uh, enormous crowds coming into the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus and the disciples engaging with them. And indeed, if, uh, if we were able to sense our way into this passage, the danger would actually be, as actually often is when we are reading the New Testament, that our minds would be distracted to other things, and our gaze would be moved away from the centerpiece of the passage which is how the Lord Jesus reacts to this situation and what Jesus does and says in this situation. Because the first thing that John wants us to grasp about the Lord Jesus in the first four verses especially is the extent to which he is conscious of God's sovereignty in his life. Uh, you notice that from one point of view, uh, Judas certainly would have thought this. He was in control of the situation, and Jesus was about to be mastered. And these several hundred soldiers and the officers from the high priests in control of the situation. The time has now come that they have been planning and plotting for months that they will take Jesus and they will be masters of the situation. And it's interesting that Simon Peter's response seems to be identical to that. 
He is fighting back against the opposition. He is fighting their mastery of the situation. But the thing that marks out the Lord Jesus is that he is conscious that they are not masters of the situation. But his father is master of the situation. And therefore he is still Lord in this situation. And we read that in two different ways in these verses, don't we? We read it in the way in which Jesus in verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him, calmly steps forwards. And in how he, he calms and solaces Simon Peter in verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? So that what John is actually bringing out in this section is that despite the apparent power of the opposition, despite the panic of the disciples and especially Simon Peter, indeed, despite Simon Peter's attempt to deal with the situation, from the very beginning to the end of it, the Lord Jesus is in absolute control of himself. The Lord Jesus displays a poise that is remarkable. And so he asks them, so who are you looking for? It's an amazing phenomenon. And it arises not because Jesus is divine, although he is, but rather because the Lord Jesus is conscious in his humanity and throughout the whole of his life, that his life is under the superintendence of his heavenly Father's will and his heavenly Father's purposes. And therefore, no matter what happens to him, no matter what crisis he is brought into, from beginning to end, his life is marked by this divinely given, humanly experienced poise in the crisis. And it's very interesting, you remember, the impression this seems to have made especially on Simon Peter. Of the apostles, Simon Peter is the one who is conscious, most of all, of the impress on his life of how the Lord Jesus responded to crisis and to suffering. And how the Lord Jesus, as Peter puts it, in his response to the crisis, left us an example to follow. And the word he uses there is uh, a word that would have been used of a, a master artist drawing a sketch that the pupil would then fill in. Or of a teacher writing uh, words on a slate or on a piece of papyrus in light outline and then the child learning to write as some of us did learn to write by copying over for himself or for herself the outline that the teacher had left. Poise in the midst of crisis because like the Lord Jesus, you know that not a hair can fall from your head 
without the wisdom and superintendence of the Heavenly Father. And it's given to us when we're conscious of His sovereignty. You know, most of us are the kind of people who, who would like a down payment from God that would reassure us that in the time of crisis we'll be okay. But uh, that would be to live by sight and not by faith. That would be to live depending on what God has given to us rather than depending on the Lord himself in the crisis. Thinking about this during the week, I had a sudden flashback to 1974 or 5, maybe 1976, one of our children uh, suddenly taken in the night with seizures. We rushed to the hospital. Um, and uh, as the doctor treats our boy, he turns to us and he says, I hope you don't mind me asking this, but you seem unusually calm. Well, it wasn't some virtue I possessed. It might have been a virtue Dorothy possessed. So what was the explanation? The explanation was, if the Lord is sovereign over everything that takes place, then in the midst of the crisis... He gives calm. It's not something he gives before the crisis, which is the way we would do it if we were God, and as a result, the Christian church would be in a total shambles. He gives it in the crisis, as he gave it to his son in his humanity in the crisis, but because he recognized the absolute sovereignty of God over every incident in his life. So the first thing to notice here is the way in which the Lord Jesus is conscious of God's sovereignty. The second thing to notice is the remarkable way in which Jesus unveils or manifests his divine identity. Now, if you sat down and read through John's Gospel from the beginning, this event would make clearer sense to you than just by reading it. But Jesus steps forward and he says, who are you looking for? And they reply, verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. I am he. Now, if you were all Greek readers, that would come blasting out of the page to you, because the Bible you would read would be a Bible, actually the Bible that the Apostle Paul used, that was a new international version. It was the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. And you would notice, you would not be able to avoid noticing it if you had read from the beginning that these were the very words that God himself had used when he disclosed the special covenant divine name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Who, will I, who am I going to say is, is sending me? And the Lord says, I am he, ego I me. And it's the same language here. So there is, I think, no doubt that John has, has, has 
underscored the fact that when Jesus says, well, I'm he, he's not just saying, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, uh, that, that happens to be me, what do you want? And that is made abundantly clear by the reaction. The reaction is that they step back rather than stepping forward, and the reaction is that they fall down rather than seizing him. This is one of those points in John's gospel where his words, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, is disclosed. And for a moment, they are conscious of the authority and majesty and deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It happens in an instant. And then it's as though the curtain comes, comes over him again. And amazingly, they get back to normal business. Actually, it's a very telling thing, isn't it? Do you remember in the parable of Dives and Lazarus, the rich man says, send someone back from the dead to my brothers, and then they'll believe this. And uh, the message is, even if someone rises from the dead, they'll not believe. Um, people say that kind of thing, don't they? I would just see God's power, I would believe. If there was just a miracle, I would believe. If this and that, I would believe. Uh, but here are soldiers who have seen the majesty and power of God, and then, a few minutes later, they just get on with their ordinary business because they don't believe in Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior. There's a huge difference. Actually, Hebrews 6 talks about this, doesn't it? There's a huge difference between tasting the powers of the world to come and actually trusting in the Lord Jesus. And that's got so many applications for us, hasn't it? Uh, we, we come among Christian people, we see the gracious things the Lord does among his people. That's not the same thing as trusting him. And these soldiers are proof positive that that's the case. So Jesus is very conscious in his life of God's sovereignty. Jesus, in verses 5 to 9, gives this amazing display of his divine identity. And then the third thing that I want you to notice as we come to the table especially, in verses 10 and 11, how committed Jesus is to his destiny. Notice these words to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now sometimes we speak about the cup, you know, that's my cup in life. Usually it refers to things going wrong rather than to things going right. But we know that there is a very special meaning about the cup here. Because he has just come from praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, as the other gospel writers tell us. When he's come to his father and he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. So what was that cup? 
Well, again, if we knew something about the Old Testament and especially the Psalms and the prophets, we, we would know what this cup was. The, the prophets often speak about it. The cup that God puts into the hands of sinners for their sin. The cup of judgment, the cup of cursing. The cup that will be a cup of condemnation. A cup that will produce trembling and desolation. The very things that we actually see recorded of Jesus in the other Gospels, how in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it seemed as if his whole being was being deconstructed. Hey. Mark actually uses language that would be descriptive of somebody who had had such a, such a shock that they felt as though they were going out of their minds and were struggling to retain their sanity. And this is the cup that Jesus is speaking about because he's been walking closer and closer to the hour when he's going to drink the cup of God's judgment, the cup of God's wrath that is full of condemnation for sinners and, and the Father is stretching out his hands now to him in the garden of Gethsemane and pressing this cup into his hands and saying to him, drink this cup. And he's saying to his heavenly Father, Father, there is nothing in me, nothing in my holy humanity that could ever want to drink this cup. And we need to understand that, not least when we come to the Lord's table, that Jesus did not pray, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, but your will be done. No, that's, Father, my desire is that this cup would pass from me. I have no desire for the contents of this cup. And of course, if he had desired anything else, that would have been a sin. You understand that, I hope. If he had said, I want to drink the contents of that cup, my desire is to drink the contents of that cup, which involve me going into some dark hole where I will not be conscious of the presence of the Father whose face I have seen from all eternity. It would have been sinful for Jesus to want that. And therein lies the crisis. Because God is calling him to will that which nothing in him could ever possibly want. To will it for the sake of sinners. To be obedient to his Father when nothing in him desires what will be involved in being obedient to his Father, except that it will be obedience to his Father. And we need to see this against the background of the whole of the Bible, actually. Remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? In the Garden of Eden, there were all these trees that were beautiful to look at, and the, the fruit looked delicious. And that included a, a tree that was in the middle of the garden that was beautiful to look at, 
and its fruit looked delicious to taste. It's described in exactly the same way as all the other trees. And so everything in Adam and Eve as they walked through the garden and looked at this tree, it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As they looked at this tree, they would have said, that is a beautiful tree. And that fruit looks absolutely delicious, just like these other trees. There was nothing in them, nor anything in the tree, that would have led them to say, that it looks revolting. Or, I mustn't taste that. No, there was only God's command. God's command to trust him and obey him because he was a wise heavenly father. So that no matter how sweet the fruit might be, how beautiful the tree might be, they would be obedient to him. Not because there was any negative revulsion from the tree, but just because their father gave them this command. But you remember what they did. The serpent said, take and eat. And they did. And what is now beginning to happen in the garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus has settled the matter as he tells us here in verse 11, is that that whole garden experience of Eden is being reversed in Gethsemane. And his father is putting into his hands a cup, the contents of which are utterly revolting to his holy humanity. And his father is saying to him, there is nothing in this cup that you could possibly desire for itself. Just as there was nothing in that tree that they would not desire for themselves. But when I said to them, trust and obey me, they rebelled. And now I'm saying to you, my son, trust and obey me and drink the cup to its last bitter dregs. And now Jesus is saying to Simon Peter, who was asleep when all this Agony in the garden was going on. Peter, the matter is settled. I go into the outer darkness. I go to the cross of Calvary and to the cry of desolation and dereliction that this cup was full of. My God, my God, why am I, why am I of all? Why should I be forsaken who has been obedient to you? And it's a measure of his commitment to his destiny that in the first garden the serpent says, take and eat. And now in the second garden as Jesus emerges from it, the Father has said to him, take and drink this cup of my curse upon sinners. And we celebrate the consequence of that today, don't we? We will actually hear the very words about the bread, take and eat. We'll hear the very words about the cup and the wine, take and eat. 
drink. Because Jesus has drunk the cup of our desolation, judgment, and condemnation, full of God's wrath against our sin. And he now offers to us not the cup of cursing, which we deserve, but the cup of blessing, which he deserved. He has taken our cup, drunk it to the dregs. He now offers us in the gospel his cup, that we may drink full of his grace. That's what Paul says, isn't it? Galatians 3.13, Christ became a curse for us. Christ drank the cursed cup for us in order that the blessing God promised might be ours, in order that we might bless the cup of blessing, as Paul says, to the Corinthians, and enjoy what our forefathers used to call the great and wonderful exchange that Jesus made, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastised to bring us peace. He was made to be sin for us, although he knew no sin, in order that in him we might be counted righteous before God. It's the heart of the Bible. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the supper. He took what is ours, gives to us what is his. He made the great exchange. And the only question as we come to the table is, have we made the great exchange and given to him what is ours, our sin, our failure, our guilt, our bondage, and taken from him what he offers to us in the gospel, in himself, his righteousness, his holiness, his freedom, his grace. And so we're able to say, as Jesus said, the cup that my Father gives me to drink. Shall I not drink it? My dear friends, it is surely the greatest thing in all the world to know that this is true, that all your sins have been laid upon him, poured into his cup, and there's nothing left in that cup to drink now. And he gives to you as you will receive today symbolically his cup that is running over with his blessings. May we taste and enjoy that as we come to the table today. Let's pray. Lord, ours is the sin, but yours the righteousness. Ours is the guilt, but yours the cleansing blood. You are our robe, our refuge, and our peace. Your blood, your righteousness. Lord Jesus Christ, Oh, we pray that we may taste the goodness of the Lord Jesus today. That you will bring back those of us who wander. That you will give courage to those of us who are fearful. That you will give your Son, Jesus Christ, to us, who as yet know him not. Oh, Come yourself, Lord Jesus, 
and say to us about this forgiveness and pardon and freedom. Take and eat. Take and drink. We pray this in your name. Amen.